0: Welcome to The Scientist Podcast, the show for anyone wanting to understand the realities of research life. We bring you into the lives of top academics, so that you can get to know the people behind the research that's shaping our world. I'm Jamie, your host, and in this podcast, I'll be bringing you candid conversations each week with those on the cutting edge of their fields. Hey everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of The Scientist Podcast. You know, I started with The Scientist in October of last year, and the entire way through I've been thinking, wouldn't it be cool to have today's guest on? I'm lucky enough to be joined by Dr. Mark Miller. Dr. Miller is, roughly speaking, a philosopher and cognitive scientist. We met at the University of Edinburgh, where I bumped into Mark in his role as a top meditation teacher. And for anyone interested in the overlap between science and cognitive science and well-being, what he does is pretty extraordinary. Mark, hey man, welcome to the pod.
1: Hey Jamie, how's it going? Thanks for the invitation. And it's nice just to talk with you because you're right, we met in Edinburgh and it's been a couple of years since we've bumped into each other, so I'm thrilled to be here chatting with you like this.
0: Yeah, we're going to catch up on science over the podcast.
1: Yeah, exactly, right. It's a nice medium, right? Very good.
0: So Mark, you got to tell everyone, what is it that you do?
1: Yeah, God, you know, I'm new faculty at the University of Hokkaido. I just started here in Japan a couple of months ago and I'm in a new department called the Center for Human Nature Artificial Intelligence and Neuroscience. This is an incredible department. I mean, if you get a chance, you should check out their homepage. It's really unlike anything you've ever seen before, I think. The department is dedicated, just like you'll see on the website, they're dedicated to bringing together researchers from philosophy, philosophy of mind and phenomenology and neuroscience and machine learning and artificial intelligence and taking teams of those people so that we're not doing our own research here. It's not like the philosophers have one building and the informatics people have another building. Like in Edinburgh, you know, in Edinburgh is actually pitched as a highly interdisciplinary university, and it is to a certain degree, and yet you still have those fields are sort of in their own building, a little bit insulated from one another, right? Here you have right up front, sort of modus operandi of the department, to bring together people from those intersecting fields to and here's the best part specifically to tackle topics that are central to human well-being to human flourishing to what it is to live a good human life and it says right on the front page that the major challenges humans are facing today are going to require this interdisciplinarity if we're really going to get to the root of those things and so That's what the department is built for. My project for the next three years is going to be looking specifically at the nature of human happiness and well-being, and especially where well-being intersects with our current socio-technological niche.
0: Yeah, when the department is (laughs) described... Well, no, but yeah, exactly. When the department is described like that, it's no wonder you got the gig, right? Because your work, I've heard it being described not by you, but by somebody else is kind of inside the brain and outside the brain, but all about the brain and well-being.
1: That's exactly right. And I was just finishing a project, you know, for the last couple of years, I was working with Andy Clark, who's currently at the University of Sussex, but he was in Edinburgh when you and I were there together. And he had a major four-year ERC project called Expecting Ourselves, Predictive Processing and the Construction of Conscious Experience. And that was the first major project to apply this theoretical framework that I work with most called predictive processing or active inference to the study, both theoretical and empirical study of consciousness. So that's what that project was set up for, okay? That's what I was doing for the last few years. And when we came to the end of the project and it was time for me to start looking for work, thank goodness I didn't have to look for long, you know, with the job market as it is right now. I was very fortunate that a colleague suggested that I apply for this job. I came across their desk, Julian Kiverstein came across his desk and he reached out to me and he just said, Mark, it was like this job was made for you. They're looking for an interdisciplinary research who can communicate and speak the languages of a philosopher and a neuroscientist and is interested in technology and they're specifically aiming at well-being. And I didn't know this at the time, but it turned out that there's a dedicated team here working on active inference already. And that team is made up of a machine learning person, a neuroscientist, and a couple of philosophers. And so it was one of my first interviews, and you're right, it was just a perfect fit. I couldn't be happier.
0: I have to pick you up there on the predictive processing, because the brain as a predictive mechanism isn't usually how we think about the brain, but it's kind of mind-blowing. So can we just get into the predictive brain?
1: Yeah, so like, you know, it's a complex framework. The nice byline, I think, is this provocative switch that happens in this framework. So traditionally, we thought that the brain processed, for instance, perceptual information, largely in a passive and bottom-up way, meaning the brain sort of waits around for signals from the world to come through the sensorium, and then it processes that information from simple up through complex as it sort of moves up through the hierarchy of the brain. And the final output, is the rich world-revealing experiences that we're used to. The predictive processing framework, here's the provocative move, basically flips that on its head and says, no, the brain isn't passive. It's radically proactive. It's not waiting around for anything. The brain builds for itself from the top down based on probabilistic knowledge about how the world works. that it learns over time interacting with the environment. It uses that probabilistic knowledge to build for itself its expectation of the way it thinks the sensory data is gonna go given the context you're in. So another way of saying that, and here's the provocative point, we hallucinate from the top down our experience of the world. This definitely always gives me a little bit queasy feeling. If you really catch it, you might feel a bit queasy here. That means that we're not really perceiving signals from out in the world. You're not really seeing with your eyes. What you're seeing is your best guess about what's happening right now. And the visual signals that are coming in from the world are just being used as training signals to train up your best hypothesis about how it is. So it's primarily a top-down affair rather than a bottom-up affair. And it's proactive rather than relatively passive.
0: Yeah, see, that's the interesting thing because all of a sudden your mental models and your predictive models, i.e. the lens to which your brain is viewing the world, starts to matter, which is kind of where you come in as far as I see it. Oh,
1: I love this, Jamie. I mean, you hit the nail right on the head. If that's the case, then the world you live in is partially being constructed by your beliefs, by your past beliefs. You know, It's constructed by the way you predict things to be. And so the things that you believe and the things that have happened to you in the past, they really matter because they're actually constructing. They're constructing the reality you live in. Now, of course, those predictions are being tightly trained by signals out in the world. That's why we don't hallucinate. Although, this is one of the real benefits of the framework is that it creates a unified account of delusion, hallucination, and dreaming, imagination, and ordinary perception. It just matters where in the hierarchy the system is selecting from. So for the most part, your predictions are being trained by the signal out in the world so that you're not hallucinating. But nevertheless, the things that you predict, and this is so cool, and actually it's on the basis of a lot of my research right now. The things that you predict, you end up making them come true. You tend to bias yourself towards seeing them, that's part of it. You know, we get a lot of information moment to moment. And so we have to selectively sample some bits and forget other bits. And partially what you expect is what you're gonna be tuning into. That's part of it. But the other part of it is we actively create our predictions as well. And so you get all these really interesting feedback cycles between enforcing your expectation and the way you make the world. So no wonder we get things like filter bubbles on the internet, right? Because with the internet, you can basically confirm any hypothesis you're currently running and around and around you go.
0: Yeah, that sounds actually like just a natural extension of a, what's the phrase? Echo chamber, right? You can have an echo chamber relationship with your feedback and your expectations. One thing that comes to mind, though, is why is the brain predictive and why does it like the order the prediction creates? Why isn't it happy just to go rogue and be bottom up and just take in as much of the world as it basically can?
1: I think the reason is, is that the world is very volatile. It's always changing. And so, you know, some life forms might do that. They don't have to have a very deep temporal perspective. But for creatures like us, one of the ways that we succeeded at what we do was linked up with us having some depth where we are able to plan over time. And as soon as you have a deep model, then it becomes important not just to respond in the moment reactively, but rather we can optimize our adaptivity by predicting how it's going to go and using those predictions in order to be prepared to change and flexibly adjust and meet that kind of volatility.
0: And what's an example of like, say your brain is very different to my brain and you have a predictive model that looks a bit different to mine because we've had different experiences. What's an example of something that we might perceive differently or predict differently?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. Okay, here's one. So I've written a paper on depression using this framework on mood disorders and depression. This was really eye-opening research, you know, really looking closely at the real nature of sort of major depression and some of the mechanisms that might be responsible for major depression. And it's such a vicious thing, especially when you see it through this computational lens. It really betrays itself in the sort of vicious nature it has. So according to this framework, one of the ways depression can arise is because relative to the kind of thing we are and in the kind of environment we find ourselves in, we tend not to be able to produce the things that we predict, okay? So rewards in this model get flipped as well. So rather than thinking that eating a piece of candy is rewarding, we say instead you have a high expectation of having good blood sugar levels, and then you feel good when you get closer to that expectation relative to where you are now. So when you get hungry, you're now far away from your prediction of being satiated. And when you eat, you get closer to your prediction, okay? So it's all about, according to this model, our whole system is built in order to reduce the error between the way that we expect the world to be and the way the world actually is.
0: And the way we expect the world to be can be represented by expectations.
1: Right, a hierarchically embedded, what we call a generative model, so, that is a hierarchical structure of beliefs and expectations about how the world works. So, you could imagine the deeper in the hierarchy, the longer the time frame. So, that's things like the sun shines from top to bottom, which is why we get some of the illusions we do. Like, for instance, I can show you a concaved circle, and then if I flip the light, it looks convex. It's not convex, it's concaved. But because it's ambiguous, your system fills in the gaps using expectations that light tends to come from the top down, okay? And closer to the bottom of the hierarchy, we have predictions that are happening in real time, like changes of shadows on my face or on my sweater, and they're embedded, okay? So that's the generative model, roughly. And we're all the time trying to act to reduce the free energy or to reduce the prediction error between our model and the world, and that's how we get along. Okay, given your skills and given your niche, if you tend not to be able to reduce error, you constantly have pervasive error, meaning the environment is volatile in a way that you can't update the aspects of yourself or of the world in order to reduce that error. So for instance, homelessness, hunger, abuse, you know these things are really difficult to update. Your body expects to be well-fed. We have long-term evolutionary expectations to be socially lucrative. And if those are constantly being breached, If we constantly do worse than expected, here's the vicious part, okay? First of all, that feels bad. So over a series of papers, we've been bringing out a theory of valence, of feeling good and feeling bad based on dynamics of error reduction. So it feels good when we reduce error well, it feels bad when we fail at it, okay? Not only does it feel bad to constantly not be able to reduce error at the rate we expect, in the ways that we expect, but if you give it enough time a higher part of the model starts to predict that the world is such that you will only have rises in error, okay? This is where it gets vicious because as soon as a deep part of the generative model instantiates that prediction, then you start sampling the world to confirm it, okay? So now you start looking for failure opportunities. Now you have a belief that says, you're not going to be able to reduce error as well as you want to. And now the system just makes that a prediction and it starts trying to confirm it. So just imagine the difference in phenomenology between somebody who has that installed and somebody who has a more sort of optimistic model installed. One of the things that's going to happen is even when there is counter evidence, even if they're succeeding in all sorts of ways, that will get its volume turned down because it doesn't align well with their prediction and everywhere that they're failing, everywhere that they're falling short, will get its volume turned up. And so we propose that's at the root of things like learned helplessness, where now you start to expect that no matter what you do, you're not gonna be able to manage the volatility in your environment, so you basically stop acting.
0: Yeah, that's an incredibly vicious meta point, right? One of the systems keeps expecting something really high to be fed and the rest, that stays. That doesn't adjust. The thing that then adjusts is, oh, you know how we're failing to meet that criteria and therefore feeling awful? Oh yeah, let's just make everything match that experience phenomenologically because we're happier in some ways, quote unquote, according to the model. The model is happier to be correctly interpreting an error and therefore making the world an error than being, oh, we surprised ourselves and we're doing better than we thought we might.
1: You're so sharp. That's exactly right. That actually, The model itself, I mean, is innocent in the affair. Whatever the model is, it will try to reduce prediction errors relative to itself. And it's innocent. It really doesn't know any better. So we wrote another paper called Embodying Addiction with Julian Kiverstein and Eric Reitfeld also. They're also my collaborators on the depression paper called, I think, How Mood Tunes Prediction. And in the addiction paper, we made a point that alongside, actually following Mark Lewis, neuroscientist Mark Lewis, that addiction might not best be thought of as a disease of the brain. We said not the brain, because actually we think that it's an embodied system. That's for another conversation, but not a disease because the brain is functioning just the way it should be. It's reducing its prediction error relative to its model. The problem is, is the model is suboptimal. You have a model that doesn't fit well with reality. And so now you're reducing free energy over a broken model. System is working fine. It's reducing prediction error just like it evolved to, except for the model doesn't fit reality very well.
0: Okay, and is the reason the model, because we're being predictive and we want to reduce error, in some ways the easiest way to go, at least as far as our data the experience would be concerned, would be, okay, well, why can't the model adjust? Isn't this supposed to be predictive? Why can't it adjust?
1: Right. There's lots of reasons. This is a big story. There's lots of reasons that a model can get warped. In addiction, there's an easy case for it. So, One more mechanism in this model that we need to introduce in order to get the sort of full power of the model is called precision weighting. That's basically the system's own self-estimations about how reliable certain streams of information are. So for instance, if you're walking home in a foggy situation, then your visual signals are less reliable because you can't see the road so well. So they get their precision turned down, which means those signals don't propagate forward in the system in the same way. They don't have the same causal efficacy to change the self-organization dynamics, okay? Instead, you might rely more on your memory if you would walked home a lot that way before. Maybe just one more example that's nice too. So if you're singing in the shower, okay, you've got a radio in the shower, and you, know, you put on a song you've never heard before, you'll hear a lot of the background noise if that's the case because you don't have a saved predictive model of the song, and so you will be combating the actual noise of the water, the white noise of the water in the tub. But if you put on your favorite song, your phenomenology will actually be such that your system will turn the volume down on the white noise and it'll turn the volume up on the song and you will actually hear it more clearly. Now, I'm not just saying that, we have some experiments for this. So they did an experiment where they took undergrads into a room and they gave them just white noise in headphones. And they told them at some point in time, it's gonna play, I'm dreaming of a white Christmas, okay? And they're to raise their hand when the song goes. And, you know, some huge number raise their hand, like 80 or 90%. And I think you probably already know where I'm going to go with this. There's no song, right? So the question is, what's happening? Are they just confabulating? Like, is it just that undergrads are impressionable (laughs) or something? And it's not that. It's not that. At least we don't suspect it's that. It's that they actually hear the song. How do they actually hear the song? Because you can turn the volume up on exactly the white noise bits that fall in line with the well-predicted melody. And you will actually get those bits will stand up and the bits that aren't on that melody, they'll get to turn their volume down and you will actually hear, you'll actually hear that melody.
0: Okay, so just to clarify that, if that was a song they had never heard of, if that was like, some obscure Hungarian techno. (laughs) And apologies to fans of obscure Hungarian techno, obviously, it wouldn't work because they wouldn't have the predictive model, therefore the phenomenology doesn't play out because there's not an error-reducing game happening. Dead on. So cool.
1: Okay, so let's bring it back to addiction. How do we get a model that bends and becomes suboptimal relative to the environment we're in? And addiction is a good example of this. So for instance, opioids, they impact the system in the same way as when you suddenly reduce error at an incredible rate over things that you care about. Okay. So when you take an opioid, it gets registered by the brain as if you just suddenly reduced a ton of error between where you were and where you want to be. And it's domain general. It's just the feeling of succeeding at the thing that you're evolutionarily built to do. Okay, so it's not surprising some people are addicts. It's surprising we're not all addicts. And I hope you can see, first of all, why opioids might be so attractive to us, especially if, like in depression, because of your skill set and because of the niche you live in, you're constantly doing less than expected. You constantly have pervasive error and volatility in your environment. You're hungry, you're abused, you know, these sorts of things. That sets the perfect conditions for why opiates might be especially attractive because they would be a temporary reprieve from this constant upswing of error you would get the temporary cessation of error now the important point is you're not actually reducing error it's only a synthetic reduction of error it's an illusion of reducing error and in fact you know long term addiction tends to create error in the rest of your life you can lose your job you lose your loved ones you lose your health and so even though you're in these short bursts having the illusion of reducing error, you're actually having errors grow in the background. So again, you get this vicious feedback cycle.
0: Yeah, and then it becomes very obvious why the psychological and socioeconomic predictors of addiction are what they are. Because if you have an inbuilt error system, which then compounds in the way that you've explained where the depression becomes predictive and vicious, well then a temporary relief from that level of error, which manifests as depression, anxiety, any kind of suffering, well, obviously, it's just a shinier thing for someone with that kind of a modeling system, because the system, even though it thinks it's doing great, and it's running well, and it's predicting all this error, as a physiological experience, it's horrific.
1: Dead on. And now, the drug seeking and taking behaviors are the only ones that reduce error to that fast degrees. As you get more error, that seems to be the best skill to utilize. Okay, but I want to come back to the bending of the generative model. So... The way that the drug impacts the brain in giving it this illusion of suddenly reducing error at a tremendous rate, what that change in sudden error reducing rates does is it adjusts precision. So that part of the system that's telling you what's valuable, that's priming which behaviors are most useful, that's the system that gets pumped directly from the opioid. Why does the model bend? Because drug taking and drug-seeking behaviors suddenly get this huge precision volume turned up on them because of the artificial error reduction. But in fact, they don't actually reduce error really in the world. And so you can imagine what you're doing there just bending the model. The model now says drug-seeking and taking behaviors are the way that you reduce free energy, the way that you reduce prediction error in this environment. And it's not. So. I hope you can see the model's working just fine and you're reducing prediction error relative to the model. The problem is, well, two things. One, we didn't evolve to manage opioids. We didn't evolve for that sort of impact. So it's messing with systems that evolved to only work when we actually do better than expected at reducing error in some important way by getting a better skill or finding a better way to be adaptive in our environment. Other thing though is that I think is so interesting is that it seems like one of the outcomes of thinking in this way is that we don't really have an opioid crisis. We have a meaning crisis, probably, you know? The fact is that systems that aren't able to reduce error well in their environment, they tend to be the systems that are most attracted to these sort of synthetic ways of reducing error. And in fact, there's some evidence for this too. Have you ever heard of the Rat Park studies? Have you ever seen this study?
0: I was about to just say, Yeah, there's this study, right, where they offer rats cocaine. And the big variable, it turns out, as to whether the rats want the cocaine or whether they don't, over the alternative of something like food, is whether they have a community. Right. If you have lots of other rats, you seem to, at least translated into this model, have enough of a supportive environment that sort of meets your evolutionary criteria such that you don't have a massive amount of error, such that you're not trying to reduce error synthetically in such a way.
1: Yeah, dead on. Another version of it was, they gave the rats a feeder with opioids and a feeder with water. And as long as it's in a sad, small cage with no friends and no games and no way to reduce prediction error relative to interesting things, right? Then it always takes the drugs because it finds good slopes of prediction error through the drugs synthetically. But if you take that same rat, even after months of being an addict, and you put it in a nine by nine meter, super fun, complex living space with other rats and games and puzzles and lots of ways for it to reduce errors it doesn't go back to the opioid water it just takes the water from that point on
0: and this is why addiction is really interesting because we've just spoken at length about the physiology of addiction being a real real thing you know it warps the systems these are real but equally you change the environment of the rat and now the opioids stop appealing so there's clearly some dynamic relationship between the two
1: This podcast episode is sponsored by Biobox Analytics. Biobox is a data analytics platform designed for scientists and clinicians working with next-generation sequencing data. With Biobox, you can design and run bioinformatic pipelines on demand, generate publication-ready plots, and discover insights using popular public databases. Spots are limited, so sign up for the waitlist and be the first to access a free account at biobox.io.
0: So in my head right you have these expectations, we can call them in colloquial terms, but really especially for ones like being fed and being warm, these are evolutionarily built-in parts of the hardware and when we don't get those we get the oh shit we're not getting that, that's a problem and it's all about error reduction, i.e. reducing the gap between reality and expectations. However what happens, the caveat I think this could be a silly question, if you do way better than you expect. Now your prediction model is still kind of wrong Right. Like if I thought I was going to finish 10th in the race and I finish second in the race, I mean, I'm incorrect. I'm happily incorrect. Do we take that and go, oh, that's great. Let's just be upwardly mobile with our expectations and take the dopamine kick. How does it play?
1: Yeah, you're dead on. So when you fail to reduce prediction error at the rate that you expect, it feels bad. And those bad feelings, they tune precision in ways that help you avoid those sorts of situations in the future, maybe tasks switch away, find other opportunities to reduce error that are available to you in your niche. If you do better than expected, then that feels good. And that good feeling tunes precision on your behavioral apparatus in such a way that you tend to get closer or to update the way that you adapt to your niche so that you can make better use of those sorts of situations again in the future. And the degree to which you're doing bad or good relative to your expectations, you can think about that as the degree to which precision is really being turned. So if you do much better, so I'm a bit of a coffee snob, I will really walk, you know, I'll walk a long way to get a good coffee. Just the other day, for instance, I realized that there is a locally famous, fantastic, small batch roaster and cafe just right beside where my office is here in Sapporo. And I had no idea it was there. So I was trekking ages to get to the good coffee. And then I suddenly realized that there is really like a fantastic cafe, so much closer. And without a doubt, I felt the strong elation to suddenly reducing air at a much greater than expected rate. And that has the effect that I will not forget the route to this new cafe. It'll be difficult for me to forget it and I will be primed now to of course go to it rather than to hike across the city. And
0: that's the evolutionary thing happening here. You want those ones to really be in some ways memorable.
1: What do you mean by evolutionary there? Because I think I get what you mean but just say a little bit more.
0: So I'm guessing when I hear that I go, okay you have this like high precision, you've done better than expected and as you've just said you're not going to forget that one now. And it almost sounds like one of the feedback mechanism or one of the purposes of the fact that this feels really good is that we don't forget it. We remember where the juicy berry tree is.
1: Right, exactly. So we suspect that, you know, we evolved this sort of affective tuning system because it helped to optimize in just those sorts of ways. It helped us pay attention to, you know, emotion turns out to, I mean, we got to be careful when we talk about emotion because emotion is such a big bag, you know, but one aspect of emotion, at least valence, so that's the positive or negative tone that comes with our feelings. And by feelings there, I don't necessarily always mean conscious feelings because of course, they don't necessarily have to be completely conscious. But that affective system is really a kind of second order information. And that's been around for a little while in the literature, but it makes perfect sense from the framework that I work on. It really is a form of second order information in the system that the system uses to track how well or poorly it's doing at adapting to its environment. and based on how well or poorly it's doing at adapting, and what we mean by adapting is the fit between the model and reality and the changes in error relative to that, that second order of information plays a role in tuning the system in ways that make sure you keep staying in contact with those things that you care about. So that we are literally drawn into the world by things that get us closer to our predictions and we're repelled, we're physiologically repelled from those things that break our predictions. So I don't know if you've seen this, but there's a documentary by a guy who thinks that the Dutch painters were using a kind of camera, like a kind of technology to do their paintings rather than just painting. Oh yeah? Have you seen this? No, never. It's fantastic, it's called Tim's Vermeer. It's fantastic, watch it. So he builds one of these giant camera obscuras in a room and then sets up the scene outside of the camera obscura and then he has a little mirror that he looks against that reflects the light from the other room. And then all he has to do is just colors the edge of what he can see. And over time, he basically colors the whole painting. Okay. And he's doing a video blog. That's how the documentary is built. Okay. And there's this great part where he's on the video blog being like, I don't know. Maybe I bit off more than I can chew, but I feel sick. I feel physically sick looking at it today. So I can't paint today. And then day two, it sort of says the same thing. He goes, I don't know like I think I might just quit because I look at it and it turns my stomach to look at it. And three or four days after, he comes on and he goes, you won't believe what I realized. I had bumped the mirror four days ago, imperceptibly, but it was slightly askew, which means the work I was doing now was creating errors rather than resolving them. He doesn't say it in that language, but it was turning his stomach. Like every day that he was putting more work in, he was actually diverging from the model. He didn't consciously know, but his affective system was informing him, don't go this way, go the other way. So interesting.
0: And he knows that's something that's running just below ground level, right?
1: Right. Except for the affective quality was conscious. He was going, I feel sick, but he didn't know why.
0: Yes, exactly. So in some ways, and this is another conversation entirely, the role of the physiological feedback as something that's trying to direct us on this model when we're doing things that are creating. One question I have is, you mentioned this earlier, and drugs are actually a bad example because it's kind of across the board. But you spoke about the different domains we care about. You know, me and you presumably care about slightly different things. Does that mean that the weighting, I guess, on how much we mind about... So I don't mind, I'm guessing, but missing my model's expectations on academia nearly as much as you do because you're an academic. Whereas you probably don't miss, I don't know, lazing around looking aimless, <laughs> which is apparently my domain. You're not so upset when you miss there. Is that right? Are we adjusted for our different interests?
1: <laughs> right, of course, of course. I've read Andy Clark, who is my advisor and is still very much a role model for me. For anybody who's listening who's not familiar with Andy Clark's work, although I suspect probably most of you are, you should catch up soon. Andy's books are, I think, essential reading for humans, you know. I've seen him read before. Our cares and concerns do importantly fall back to basic homeostatic needs, you know. But one of the special things about sort of our metacognitive development in sort of, you know, relatively recent evolution is that our basic homeostatic needs aren't the only thing that's setting precision on prediction errors, although they still have, for the most part, a pretty loud voice in how the system gets reorganized. Just as a side note there, that's a pretty interesting place to start thinking about contemplative practices because you have you know, thousands of years old professional programs of adjusting precision actively, and you know, precision turns out to be closely related to attention And so contemplative practices are all about maturing attentional processes so that you can update the way that you are meeting the world. Okay. So ordinarily, homeostasis has a big voice in how precision is being tuned. And that makes a lot of sense because we are a sort of two billion year old intelligence, right? And what's worked in the past should still feature in what we do today. But of course, If we only run, and this is a good jumping off point to talk more about contemplative practices in a moment, but if we're only being tuned by our evolutionarily ancient needs, then I think we see a lot of the problems in the world today emerge from that. I mean, if you're only running on those basic needs, then we can run into some problems. But that's not the case for humans, right? For humans, not only are we being driven by those basic needs, But we're right. Basically anything that we care about, that's one of the sort of gifts of having the sort of model that we do. The things that we care about turn out to be our expectations. And then the system does the same thing it does over any expectation. And that is reduce the prediction error between the expectation and reality.
0: Yeah, I love that because it accounts for the fact that clearly we're driven by these evolutionarily built-in requirements. But also we're two very different people and therefore different things will upset us or Represent victories. I just want to jump back into that because you've just described sort of contemplative practices as in some ways using attention to fine tune the precision models. And it's just so interesting that this is research that you're doing today, right? This isn't yesterday, this is today. And yet, two and a half thousand years ago, you have the same mechanisms being utilised, although it might be in a couple of very different contexts. So you could have different gods or no gods in different cultures across different people. But nonetheless, there seems to be something quite human about the experience of the mechanism.
1: Yeah, dead on. I mean, one of the things that you see, I think, shared across, I would be surprised to find a contemplative practice that didn't share this feature, but that's the development of skills and abilities around attention, right? Attention and awareness. That seems to be shared sort of across the board. And that makes perfect sense, given this framework. I mean, given many frameworks, but especially as framework, it really stands up because we think that attention and precision, like I said before, are really closely related. So learning to control attention is tantamount to saying you're learning how to actively select precision on error units, which is tantamount to saying you have control over what bits of data are having an impact on the self-organization of your system. Right? So back to the sort of pessimist and optimist, if you want hands down, so I've been practicing meditation for the past 20 years, and I've been a teacher for the past seven or eight years, probably, if you want hands down the most powerful context invariant practice I know, and it's so cheesy, but I'm telling you, it's the most powerful practice I know, every day for a year, write down three reasons that you feel fortunate, or that you're grateful. And everybody's probably heard of this by now, but it has massive impact. And just imagine from our framework, what that would do. So for the first week, it probably doesn't do anything. It's so easy, maybe even the first month. But if you don't repeat, if every day you don't repeat any of the three, and every day you're setting precision on, actively setting precision on, look for things that are good, okay? And then you start to fail at it because you run out of the easy things which means the system now needs to start investing more resources in order to reduce the error between its expectation to find things that are good and the world it currently observes. And how does it reduce that error? It starts selectively sampling from the world, actively looking for something good. So this is the complete flip of the depression model we'd just spoken about a few minutes ago. You are now getting the system by adjusting your own precision estimation on those signals to start behaving in ways that generate, you know, things that you're grateful for. And after a year, you will live in a substantially different world because your generative model will be substantially changed. You will live in a model that is sensitive to the things that work. So, I mean, just imagine now how much time we put into the opposite, you know, bitching and complaining about service at a restaurant, dramatizing and gossiping with our friends in a sort of negative way. That's all training. It's exactly the same. You're setting precision on certain errors and you are slowly growing the kind of world you live in.
0: Yeah, you know what I love here is speaking of changing your internal environment and contemplative practice, Kuladasa, sort of a meditation slash neuroscience dude, he spoke about karma and he spoke about karma not so much that you sort of do a good deed and now that's a number in the bank and then eventually in this life or some other something good happens. But in doing the good deeds, you are training your internal environment to sort of seek out the positives, which then in turn impacts your physiological experience, which in turn is kind of a form of that's your brownie at the end rather than some kind of like abstract, No, no, no. but 50 quid is going to sort of sweep up into my hand.
1: Yeah, it's a fascinating way to think. I mean, it's literally true, given this framework, that you are your karma. If what we mean by karma is predictions based on the things that have happened in the past. Not only your neural architecture, but even your physical body is the output of a phenotypical evolution over time that reduced prediction error relative to the niche you live in. You are a hierarchical stack of expectations that has been engendered by the kind of environment that you and your ancestors grew up in. That is you. And the world you experience is directly being generated by that organization. Like the world you live in is literally an outpouring of your hierarchical stack of expectations. You could just say your karma. And the way that you adjust your karma is exactly the way that the traditional contemplative practices, you know, the ones that are exposed in Buddhism in particular, just the way that they say, which is you hone attention, you hone precision, and you start taking an active role in setting precision on certain errors rather than on other errors, rather than just letting your biological structure set precision for you. You start taking a hand in adjusting your own precision. Have you seen this new book? I'm not going to be able to remember the title of the book. It's the guy in the tech industry who's writing on attention merchants. Do you know the book I mean?
0: Oh, I don't, but it sounds cool.
1: Maybe stand out of my light. And it's a book about how marketing and advertising is using all of the powers of psychology and neuroscience in order to capture attention and that we have a duty as just humans that want to live well to start to mature our attentional processes in a way where we can reown where our attention goes rather than just letting marketing and advertising interface with our evolutionarily old precision estimation mechanisms that we have a duty to mature better and more sophisticated precision estimation systems that are able to sort of avoid the traps of the attention merchant industry.
0: Yeah, I always think it's slightly fucked when you see like a bunch of neuroscientists and psychologists working on getting Twitter's notification emoji come up, just the right delay such that you're doing the mental, I think it's a bit fucked up. You know, I'm a big football fan and last night I watched the game where a 17-year-old, 17-year-old scored a brilliant goal and is gonna have an amazing career is he just on this model in all sorts of trouble because now his expectations are a tuesday night age 17 <laughs> i mean it though i mean because a tuesday night age 17 for me probably looked what they would like for most people which is sort of picking at your acne and your braces rather than scoring a goal in front of 50 million watches is he now in trouble how does this work
1: well there's a lot that goes into what will end up with a model acting in sort of pathological ways and that's going to have a lot to do with individual differences as well. So it's difficult to make any sort of generalization. But one thing that comes to mind is you are on to one potential problem. And that is, and this comes up in our paper on depression. You can, for whatever reason, have too high of an expectation for how well you should be able to reduce error in your niche. And ordinarily, if you do worse than expected, which isn't a problem, But if you do worse than expected, what should happen is your expectation should be adjusted down to where you are, really. And that's a good place for adaptivity. So, for instance, if you come to a university, so you're used to always being the big fish in high school, but you come to university and you're not used to doing university style studying. And so your first mark is a C instead of an A. A good adaptive system will feel bad when that happens, but it will bring down its expectations. It'll make its expectations more reasonable. And that's valuable because those expectations will then drive the system. So let's say now you're expecting to do just a little bit better than a C. That's a really good adaptive strategy for doing better overall. You're not really trying to get an A plus right now. You might be just trying to get B style skills implemented i hope you can feel it. that would be like a super healthy way to see that sort of play out
0: yeah oh my god you would all of a sudden be this well-adjusted human being who went right. well i'm used to an a i gotta see okay maybe a b would be great i'm sort of saying this i'm thinking as i don't know anyone like that but yes of course
1: right right but imagine because then if you get the b then you get that positive reward that tunes you and then maybe a B plus, and then an A minus, and you're incrementally getting better. There's lots of evidence that shows these incremental predictions really work. But what happens if you come from a culture or a family group who have extremely high expectations about you being an A student? So now, perhaps, they are setting your precision estimation on being an A student, because maybe precision is also being set by your environment, not only by yourself. So now you have a pegged A and you get a C. So now you have this error. And then your next test, you get a B minus, but you don't get any positivity from that because it's still minus what you expect. And then you get a B plus and you still get no positivity from it. And I hope you can see if that keeps happening, even though you're progressively getting better, you're getting constant hits of negativity. Now, do you remember what we said earlier in today's talk? If you keep having hits of negativity in a niche that you care about over too much time, then other predictions can start being engendered that say you are a failure, you know? And then it starts to look for where you're a failure. So I hope you can see like having too high of an expectation of error reduction in a way that's not flexible of course, can lead to problems. And actually, let me just conclude by saying, so we have a new paper that's going to be coming out in preprint just in the next couple of days called the Predictive Dynamics of Happiness and Wellbeing, where we're applying the work from active inference and the free energy principle to thinking about what is happiness and what is well-being. And what we end up saying is that actually rigidity of any kind in the system what Inez Hippolito, another fantastic researcher who has a paper coming out called Psychotic Markov Blankets that does something very similar. Anytime that there's an insulated prediction that's not updatable by incoming evidence, that's a recipe for the system to start veering towards pathological ways of processing. So any kind of stuckness, even if it's too high of an expectation.
0: And what pegs it? Because I love the example of maybe your familial expectations or your cultural expectations are this thing's massively important. Is that the kind of thing that might peg an expectation?
1: Right. It could also just be your constellation of beliefs otherwise. Like maybe your friends could do the same sort of thing. It could be purely biological. You could have atypical neuromodulatory activations for whatever reason that those things happen. And they're just not adjusting precision the way that they ordinarily do or like in the case of addiction, all addictions, like hyperstimulants, in addition to sort of opioids, they impact the system in a way that tends to produce exactly those kinds of insulated rigidities. So there's a couple of cases, but I bet there's lots. This is just like one piece of advice for like living a good life. that's starting to come out of the research that would be nice to share, I sort of share it with anybody that I can. So there's a group of people called super forecasters. Have you heard of this? There was a new book out called Super Forecasters. and it's actually a thing, like people train in forecasting and they actually go to competitions where they're given sort of noisy data sets and then they work alone or in teams to try to make predictions given the noisy data set. And you can get better at it. It doesn't just come along for the ride, but you can build skills that make you a better forecaster or a better predictor. And I've been thinking for a while about what sorts of virtues can we extract from those people that might be applicable for we as predictive agents. There's two things that I like that I'm trying to implement in my own life. I think it's just a nice thing to start implementing in all of our lives. One is across the board, super forecasters are extremely curious. Okay, they're extremely curious. They love getting information about lots of different things. So then you can see already, they're not getting stuck in any one small avenue of thinking, but rather they're diversifying the kinds of things that they're interested in. But more importantly, super forecasters, and now this is in my parlance, they have a high level prediction that tells them that their own predictions are only relatively right. So they have a modicum of doubt about all of their models such that they're always looking for ways to update what they know and the way they experience the world. So if you talk to somebody who has that sort of high level belief, they'll be the kind of person who says, you know, for instance, you say, hey, do you believe in the theory that you've been generating? I asked Andy Clark that one time. You know, I said, do you think that this is really the way to go? And he answered me in such a cool way that really shows that you know, he has this tendency that super forecasters do. He said, I'm not sure. You know, I think it's the best we can do given where we are in our scientific maturity. But of course, it's gonna be updated and refined and optimized as we go forward. So you can already tell he's not going to be neurotically holding on to any one belief. And if you look at some of the problems that are happening in the United States today, what you see there is a pathological holding of one belief at the expense of all of the possible data that might update or impact that model. So be curious and have a modicum of doubt over what you know. Always be willing to update what you know. That seems like a good way to go for predictive agents like us.
0: Mark, that was brilliant. Where can everybody find you?
1: Right. I have a website, markdmiller.org. And I'm on Twitter at Predictive Life is my handle there. And like I said, I'm an assistant professor at the University of Hokkaido in the Center for Human Nature, Artificial Intelligence and Neuroscience. And if you're interested in this interdisciplinary research, you should come to our website and keep an eye out because lots of good research is coming out of this lab.
0: Mark, thank you so much for coming on and sort of sharing what is, at least to me, one of the most fascinating overlaps. You know, sometimes you produce a model or a group of people produce a model that seems to have good explanatory power, but also explains something that we care about. And the two in combination is a rare thing. And this is that dead on.
1: You know, and that's by design. I don't love science for science sake. I love science and I love philosophy insofar as they help me better understand what it is to live a good life and to think about happiness and well-being for people like us.
0: Mark, thanks again, everyone. That has been The Scientist Podcast. And as always, we will see you next week.